37th parallel on America's haunted highway, it's Pixelated Paranormal, your guide to the unusual and the strange. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to Pixelated Paranormal, episode 226. Bizarre Burial Requests. Ooh. That's right. We are keeping on, keeping on, talking about death. And on this episode, because we are in the midst of snowmageddon over here in the Midwest, and Kansas is expected to get like 7 to 10 inches of snow, and it's currently raining down ice... We're going to probably keep this one kind of short just because we're not sure how long the power lines and cable lines and so on are going to stay up before everything shuts down. Now, you probably heard him a second ago. On this episode with me, as always, is Preston. What's up, all you cool crocodoons and crocodingos? <laughs> and uh, unfortunately, we, we are recording on an unusual night, and Stephen is at work tonight, so we hope you're driving safe, buddy, out there. Be careful, as it's probably getting kind of icy. Yeah. Stack them to the roof and the floor. That added weight will give you traction. <laughs> That's true, man. You might not fishtail if you get a couple cold ones in the back. Now, <laughs> oh. at the top of the ep- <laughs> at the top of the episode, before we get too far into the topic, we want to give a shout out to Jay. Jay sent us a wonderful email in regards to episode two twenty four. Jay says, "Good afternoon. I have two things about this episode. First, don't go all describing your bearish body, Preston, without some pictures to back it up. Your gay, bear-loving audience needs some eye candy. LOL. <laughs> well, oh. you just might get your wish there, Jay, because um, there was rumor once upon a time that old Preston and I got together with our buddy Isaac, listener and photographer and musician of the show." And we took a few dudewar photos, and we might just drop a couple of those on the old social medias. Who knows? Brace yourself. Yeah. Second of all, Jay says, Via the movie Iron Sky 2, it's actually Sarah Palin that is a lizard folk, not Hillary. Just needing to say hello and love your show. Started following because I'm friends with Henderson Man, but stuck around because of the content, even the sad episodes that make me cry. You guys never change. Jay. Oh. Well, Jay, thank you so, so much for writing in. We appreciate that. Uh, I hope you don't mind us sharing that on the uh, on an episode, but we appreciate stuff like that. It makes us feel warm and fuzzy, and you might just uh, persuade us to put some of those scandalous photos on the old Instagram, so stay tuned. Yeah. Now, as I said before, on this episode, we're going to chat about some strange burial requests. Now, as most of you guys know, different cultures have what some of us would consider to be bizarre burial practices. Some of those practices include, but are not limited to, burial beads. Burial beads, turning your dead loved ones into colorful beads. Because once you, you know, cremate somebody, you turn them into ash, and if you press ash and coal together hard enough, you can get fake diamonds and also get glass-like gems, or beads in this case, that you can change the colors of and then display them in decorative bottles, much like the people in South Korea. Mm. You can also have those ashes pressed into diamonds and make jewelry out of your loved ones. 
We've got endo-cannibalism, eating the dead, in the old days, the Melanesians of Papua New Guinea, and the Wari people of Brazil would gather together to actually eat the dead in order to expel the fear and mystery that surrounds the concept of death. Now, if that doesn't do it for you and you're more of a uh, oceanographer or lover of the deep blue sea, there is a company here in the old US of A called Eternal Reefs that can compress your remains into a sphere or ball of reef. That's right, coral reef, and attach it to a living reef in the ocean providing habitats for sea life. AKA Dawn of the Dead meets Finding Nemo. Now, if that's not getting your goose, how about the act of fama dihana, the turning of the bones? Once every seven years, the Malagasy people of Madagascar will dig up the bodies of their deceased loved ones, wrap the bodies up into cloth sacks, and then dance with the remains of the corpses while discussing stories of their living family. And because the bodies might smell kind of funky, they spray them with wine and perfume to make them smell just a little bit better. Mm. Now, depending on your belief systems, if you're Buddhist, you may be familiar with the sky burial of Tibet. Many people, especially the Buddhists, will sometimes cut the bodies of the deceased into pieces and leave them on top of a hill for birds to feast upon. The Buddhists see dead bodies as empty vessels and consider the sky burial an act of charity and compassion. Slightly deviating from that concept, you also have the Zoroastrian vulture funerals, where the corpses of the deceased are washed with bull urine after being visited by the holy dog or the Sagdid, after which the remains are placed on top of the Tower of Silence, where the bodies are swiftly consumed by loads of hungry vultures. Vultures, as it seems, guys, look like they're kind of getting the better end of the deal here. And then you have the Haida people of North America, Native Americans, uh, that is, which had a special ritual called the Hayden Totem Pole Funerals. During the death of a chief or a shaman, the body would be crushed into a pulp with clubs and then put into a suitcase-like box that would then be put atop a mortuary-style totem pole in front of their home. Now, this one sounds a little more up your brother's alley, Preston. The Tinguin... vinyl record? <laughs> no, no, that also seems very much like Jason. The, <laughs> the Tinguin Funeral Festival, where you take the deceased in the Philippines, you dress their bodies up with their Sunday best, you put flowers and beads and jewelry on them, you slap a cigarette between their lips, and you prop their dead bodies up in the corner of a room. And also, like you just mentioned, too, you can also have your ashes mixed with vinyl and pressed into a record with a playlist of your choice. So, like I said, most of us know that different cultures have, you know, what we consider bizarre burial practices, but that's not exactly what we're here to talk about on this episode, because respectfully, cultural differences are steeped in religious beliefs and stem from centuries of, you know, deep traditions. And we are not here to balk at anybody's religion, lack thereof, or personal beliefs. 
So on this episode, we're here to take a peek at some of the weirder personal requests that folks have had to help deliver themselves to the hereafter. On this episode, folks, we've got comic books, we've got outer space, and we even have perhaps a heist of a dead body fit for a Scorsese film. So buckle up, hold on, here we go. First of all, space, the final frontier, or perhaps the final funeral resting place for your loved one. Now, we might not think of space being a popular final destination for anybody that we love, but old Gordon Cooper, an Air Force pilot and astronaut with over 7,000 hours of flight time under his belt, decided that after helping humanity reach the stars during Project Mercury, being involved in the first manned space mission earns him the right to have his body buried at space. He had a portion of his ashes flown into the great beyond shortly after his death in 2004. After three years of being deceased, in 2007, some of his ashes, along with those of some others I'll mention here shortly after, were sent up into a suborbital flight, but the capsule fell back to Earth too soon, and due to bad weather, it wasn't found for a few weeks later. A portion of his remains were sent back up in a rocket one year later in 2008, but those two were lost when the rocket failed two minutes into the flight. Finally, a total of five years after the first initial attempt, in May 2012, some more of his ashes were sent back up in a successful space mission where they remained up in the orbit for a month before burning up on re-entry into Earth's atmosphere. Cooper was also accompanied by the one and only James Duhon Preston. Any idea who James Duhon was? Not a fucking clue. Okay, you might better know him as Star Trek's Scotty. And during that same exact space mission, some of the charred remains of Star Trek's creator Gene Roddenberry were also sent into orbit. Mm. The final frontier. The final Resting place. If you don't get it right the first time, try, try again. So. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Now from space, we're going to move on to a true warrior's death. If you've never heard of old Robert the Bruce, that's okay. But now you might want to Google him after you hear what I'm about to tell you. Robert the Bruce was the king of the Scots from 1306 to 1329. During his reign, he led his people to victory in the First War of Scottish Independence. This guy was a real badass. He left no one behind, and he held no prisoners. Well, on his deathbed, the hero king only had one regret. Through all the bloody battles he fought and all the good he did for his fellow Scots, he never managed to participate in a crusade into the Holy Land. Knowing that he would never be able to make the journey due to his current state, he asked his friend, Sir James Douglas, to carry his heart through battle instead. Sir James Douglas agreed and set out for the Holy Land with the late king's heart encased in a silver casket. Now, this plan initially was to hold onto the heart and parade it around during battle as he's slaying, you know, the opposite uh, force. But unfortunately, things kind of went tits up 
And during the Battle of Teba, Sir James Douglas was actually abandoned by his allies in the last attempt to make sure that his best friend saw battle for the last time. Douglas said, hell no, and threw the heart in the midst of the chaos of battle, telling it loudly, go first, as thou hast always done. Douglas, unfortunately, would go on to die shortly after in the battle, but the king's heart was returned to Scotland and buried at Melrose Abbey. It's kind of like that scene in uh, Monty Python with the holy hand grenade, but it's just some guy's ticker. Yeah. And again, I've said it once, if you don't succeed the first time, try again. (laughs) Somehow I feel like there's going to be a lot of that this episode. Well, this uh, this fucker had a weird request, and they were going to do this with disasters, and then it all went, you know, tits up, and they fucked up, and they had to do it again, and that didn't go well, so then guess what? They did it a third time, and oh my God, they got it right. There you go. Well, I hate to let you down, buddy, but those were the only two stories of things going mostly awry. The rest oh, of these, uh, save for <laughs> the rest of these, save for the final story, are pretty much successful. Okay. Yeah, you know, I hate to let you down, but don't worry, buddy. I got some good stuff still saved for us. Yeah. Now, Robert the Bruce surely died, and his legacy was left in the history books. Well. Our next guy, he too was immortalized in the old history books, but in a different way. Now, Presto, you and I are big comic book nerds, right? Yes. Yes, we are. And as, of course, we know the cardinal rule in most cases in our beloved comic books, most of the characters are sure to die and shake things up a bit. But subsequently, a lot of these characters, both good and bad, are later resurrected all the time almost to the point where you just about stop buying comic books like The Death of Wolverine or Issue 700 of The Amazing Spider-Man because we know, first of all, they're going to come back. And at this point, you just about have to guarantee it because like in Issue 700 of Amazing Spider-Man, when they killed Peter Parker, the damn writers received death threats to the point of having to give up the ghost and spoil their own story arcs, publicly announcing Spider-Man would come back to life just to save their own bacon. Well, even though the cardinal rule is if you die, you can come back in the comic books, sadly the same thing can't be said for their creators who have pretty much just one life to live and one lifetime to give. Such is the case with comic book author Mark Grunewald. Now, Mark was a writer, an editor, and occasionally a penciler, especially noteworthy for Marvel Comics. Now, he was specifically known for his runs on titles such as Captain America and the Squadron Supreme. In 1996, unfortunately, Grunewald died of a heart attack caused by caused by an undetected congenital heart defect. Prior to his death, he had made it known to his loved ones that he wished for his ashes to be used as part of a series of comic books. So in keeping with these strange wishes, his family had some of his ashes mixed together with ink that was then used to produce the first printing of a trade paperback edition of Squadron Supreme. So today, somewhere in the world, there are almost 4,000 copies of this first run of this comic book containing the remains of their original author, Mr. Mark Grunewald. 
So if you have a first run edition of Squadron Supreme, you might just double check because if it's not the hologram cover, you may want to throw that bad boy in a meat locker. Now let's move on to people going out doing what they loved. Preston, are you familiar with the brilliant American inventor, Frederick Bauer? No. What did he invent? Okay. Now I'm going to give you a hint. Once you pop, you can't stop. Pringles? Frederick, no fucking way. Yeah, there you go. Frederick Bauer was an organic chemist whose most noteworthy achievement during his living years was creating the tubular containers used to package Pringles chips. Done mostly because he just got sick and tired of chip bags going all willy-nilly in big, disorganized pouches. Somebody so, go get that guy the Nobel Peace Prize. <laughs> so he invented the Pringles tube that we all know so well. Well, just like Mr. Grunewald, before Frederick passed away, he asked that he be buried in his beloved creation, the Pringles can. So upon his death in 2008, his children carried out his wishes and put some of his ashes into one of his Pringles cans that he created. Then the can was placed alongside an urn containing the rest of his ashes, both buried inside his grave. Now, if you didn't invent the Pringles can, maybe you still want your body to live on. In some ways, we do that by just checking the little box at the DMV saying, Organ Donor. But sometimes people want to go the extra mile, and there's always the option of donating your body to be used for medical research or science. Well, that's not quite the case of Polish pianist and composer Andrzej Tychowski, which I probably just mispronounced. He went even further by not only donating his body to science, but also giving his skull to the arts. In his will, Tychowski had asked that his skull be donated to the Royal Shakespeare Company with the hope that it would one day be used in a production of Hamlet. Now, though he died all the way back in 1982, a decade or more would pass before somebody would feel comfortable finally using the skull on stage to hold out his dying wish. In 2008, his final wish was granted by none other than the doctor, David Tennant. David Tennant used the skull in a series of performances. Initially, the press was told the skull had been swapped out for a fake, only for it to be revealed later on that the real skull had been used by Tennant and helped to aid Tychowski's dying wish. That'd be pretty killer to have a freaking human skull, but I'm not sure if that's quite legal. It is illegal to have a current human skull, but it's not illegal to purchase a human skull that's like, you know, b before the law passed. So, like, if you have, like, a human skull from, like, the 1800s or, like, the early 1900s, oh, yeah? totally 100% kosher. Uh, kosher. But you can't, like, go buy a skull, like a fresh one on the market today. That's illegal. Oh, uh, I, I forget, interesting. I forget what year they, they put it into place. But, yes, prior to that law, it's kind of like, um, you know, uh, Native American artifacts. Like, 
technically you can buy them if uh, you purchase it before, like, they enacted the law in, like, the 50s. But then um, if you have uh, a Native American artifact in your possession, it shows that you purchased it in 1961, like, you go to jail. But if you bought it before that, Mm -hmm. nobody gives a shit. So same thing with skulls. Okay. So, I mean, that's a real poltergeist. (laughs) inspired law i guess yeah yeah well that makes sense man i mean i know if you ever saw the movie return of the living dead a lot of these humans uh skeletons came from india so i wonder when that law was actually passed and had we actually put this together a little better we might have actually had the facts you know what we'll do a follow-up on next episode because i got an i i I have an episode in the can that I think would follow up to this one nicely before we get into the other topics of death. So, okay, sweet man. I'll, yeah. I'll let you redeem yourself next week. <laughs> Perfect. Right, now, our final story for the episode. Preston, have you ever heard of old Ingram Cecil Connor the Third? Nope. All right. How about a gentleman known as Graham Parsons? Nope. Okay. Well. I think this story would actually make a pretty badass Scorsese film because it might just be a heist that's even more interesting than Ocean's Eleven. Ingram Cecil Connor III, a.k.a. Graham Parsons, was an American singer-songwriter whose most noteworthy song would be one that we all know entitled Love Hurts. Now, Graham Parsons' version is not quite the well-known version that we all know and love today. That was later covered by Nazareth. But let me tell you the interesting story of Mr. Graham Parsons and why the hell he's even being mentioned in this episode. Graham Parsons, originally named Ingram Cecil Connor III, was born on November 5th, 1946. His professional career was spent being involved in bands like the International Submarine Band, the Birds, and the Flying Burrito Brothers, and he also went on to have a solo career, and he's hailed as the father of cosmic American music, a hybrid of country, rhythm and blues, soul, and folk and rock and roll. Now, later on in Graham's life in the late 1960s, he became enamored with vacationing to Joshua Tree National Park, which was then just known as a monument in Southern California. He frequented the area to use psychedelics and go UFO hunting. Well, after splitting from his wife, Gretchen Burrell, Parsons often spent his weekends in the area with Margaret Fisher and Phil Kaufman, whom he'd been living with. He was scheduled to resume his solo career tour on October 1973 when he decided to go on another recuperative excursion on September 17th to Joshua Tree. Accompanying him on the trip were Fisher and his personal assistant, Michael Martin, along with Martin's girlfriend, Dale Elroy. Kaufman later said that during this vacation, Parsons' attorney was drawing up divorce papers. During the trip, Parson often retreated by himself into the desert while the group visited bars in nearby hamlet of in the nearby hamlet of Yucca Valley, California. During both nights of their stay. Now, during this time, Parsons consumed large amounts of alcohol and barbiturates. 
On September 18th, Martin drove back to Los Angeles to resupply the group with marijuana. Later that night, after challenging Fisher and McElroy to a drinking contest, Fisher denied drinks because he was an alcoholic, and Elroy turned down drinking because he was getting over a bout of hepatitis. So, Parsons said, screw you guys, I'm going to drink for the three of us, and in front of them proceeded to down six double tequila shots. They all returned to the Joshua Tree Inn, where Parsons purchased morphine from an unknown woman. After being injected by her morphine in room number one, unfortunately, Graham Parsons overdosed. Fisher had given Parsons an ice cube suppository and later a cold shower. Instead of moving Parsons around the room, she put him in the bed in room number eight and went out to buy coffee in hopes of reviving him <laughs> after an ice cube enema with a nice cup of joe. Now, as his respiration became irregular and he later died, McElroy attempted resuscitation. Her efforts failed. Bada boom, bada bing. Unfortunately, Parsons would die in the Yucca Valley Hospital at 12.15 a.m. on September 19, 1973. Now, here's why we included Mr. Parsons' story. Before his death, Parsons had mentioned to Kaufman he wanted his body to be cremated in the Joshua Tree Park and have his ashes spread across Cap Rock, a prominent natural feature located at Joshua Tree Park. Unfortunately, though, Parsons' stepfather, Bob, organized a private ceremony back in New Orleans because he found out that if his son was a New Orleans native, he could actually take some of his inheritance from his grandfather, who apparently was loaded. So Parsons' stepfather Bob organized a private ceremony back in New Orleans and neglected to invite any of his friends, fearing they may actually stand against this and ruin the whole scheme. Well, that just wasn't going to do for Parsons' best friend, Mr. Kaufman. So here is an actual account of what Kaufman says transpired shortly after the original burial of Graham Parsons. So when Parsons' best friend Phil Kaufman heard that he had passed away, he decided to, to fulfill Parsons' final wishes. He says in his own words, When Dale called me and told me that Graham was dead, all I could think was, no, no. But then Dale said, Graham's dead, and they're taking his body away. And I said, okay, I'll be right there. It's about a three-hour drive to get there from L.A., and my girlfriend at the time had a VW bus. So we got to the motel early in the morning, and I cleaned the room out. Then at the hospital, I was told by the police they wanted to interview the girls that were with us again that night. So I told them who I was and said I'd bring the girls right back for the interview. I got everybody into my car and took them back to L.A. to get them out of the local police jurisdiction so the girls wouldn't have to be interviewed because we wanted to clear out all the drugs and all the party favors that were there, and we didn't want to be involved in the death of our friend Graham. So I stayed home at my house in Chandler, L.A. for a couple of days, but I knew what I had to do. I had to fulfill my promise to Graham for his final wishes. So I called the mortuary in Joshua Tree to find out where Graham's body was, and they told me he was en route to Continental Airlines from LAX, from where they would then be shipping his body back to his stepfather in New Orleans. Well, I knew that Graham hated fucking New Orleans, and he hated Louisiana. But that, So as it happens, though, 
Dale, well, she owned a big old Cadillac hearse. So I told her I wanted it, I needed it, and I needed our old friend Michael to help me out. So Michael and I put on our Sin City jackets, on our cowboy hats, and we took the whole team down to help us out. I'm talking about Jose, Jack, Jim, and Mickey, which is Jose Cuervo, Jack Daniels, Jim Beam, and Mickey Big Mouth Beers. Together we got all oiled up, and they had his body in a holding area in the hangar in the airport, where they take the caskets for onward shipment. Well, they got there about 10 o'clock Thursday night, and before the casket could be loaded onto a plane, the coroners noticed two individuals in a funeral coach arriving, and they told the attendant that the family had changed their decision last minute and wanted to ship the body from Van Nuys Airport. Kaufman says, At first, uh, the coroner was kind of suspicious. He was looking at the way we were dressed, so I told him we were working overtime and please forgive the way we were presented. I basically hustled him into hurrying the hell up. I told him we had to work overtime and we had a couple broads back at the hotel who were waiting on us, so if he know what I mean, I wish we could hurry things up a little bit. As I'm signing papers using the name Jeremy Nobody... All of a sudden, a police officer pulls up and blocks our exit, and I was pretty sure at that point our goose was pretty much cooked. The cop gets out, and he's just standing there staring at us. And so finally I thought, all right, here's a Hail Mary. And I yelled at the cop, hey, quit standing there and give us a hand with this stiff, will ya? And to our utter astonishment, the police officer goes, oh, oh, okay. He hustles over and helps us load Graham's body into the hearse. Michael got behind the wheel, and as we drove, we hit the hangar door. <laughs> there was enough space for a plane to taxi through, and we hit the damn door. The cop looked at us like we were crazy, and I'm thinking to myself, God, we must be in trouble now. But he moved his car, and off we went. We stopped at a local gas station and bought five gallons of gasoline, and then we took our drunken stupor with Graham in the back, and we drove out beyond Joshua Tree Inn. By now, it's like one in the morning, and we're up in the National Park driving until we reached Cap Rock. That's about as far as we can go in our current drunken stupor. So we opened up the back of the hearse, but the casket was dropped as Michael was pulling it out, and that made Mike a little edgy. But I decided we had to say goodbye to Graham, so I opened up the casket. And the hinges obviously hadn't been oiled up, so it creaked real loud, and there he was just laying there, naked, with surgical tape covering where they had done the autopsy. We used to do this thing, you know, when you're a kid and you lay down, you point to someone's chest and they look down and you go zip and bump their nose. Well, that was the last thing I did to Graham. <laughs> uh, Mike was standing there going, don't touch him, man. But you know what? He's dead, wasn't he? So then I poured the gasoline all over him and said, all right, Graham, on your way. I struck the match and threw it on the gasoline and when you do that, it consumes an enormous amount of oxygen and makes a big whoosh. So as we're standing there watching, the body actually started to bubble, and then we saw his ashes flying up into the night. Then we saw some headlights approaching from across the desert, and we thought it might be some park rangers, so we decided to beat up the hell out of there. On the way back to L.A., there was a lot of traffic, and there had been some kind of accident because we rear-ended a car on the freeway, and a cop leaned over and looked at the hearse just as Michael opened his door, where a bunch of beer bottles fell out. Well, the cop caught on to something being kind of wonky, and he says, You two, stay there! And he handcuffed us together, 
and went back to his car. Well, Michael was a skinny little guy, so he just slipped his hand out of the cuffs, and we took off down the nearest off-ramp. When we got back to my house, I got someone to cut off the handcuffs. Then later on Friday, late that morning, a report was made to the San Bernardino Sheriff's Office of a casket and a body burning in the middle of Joshua Tree National Monument. Subsequent investigations had revealed an advanced charred body with only a small residual amount of casket was remaining in a smoldering pile. Metal handles were intact, but most of the wood had been burned all the way. The body had been previously autopsied and embalmed, and there was evidence that this was the body of Graham Parsons. The body was very badly burned, the fingers were gone, all that were left were facial features. The undersigned remembered that, at the request of the wife of the deceased, a ring was to be left on the ring finger on the left side of the body of the subject. So a metal yellow ring was discovered with a red stone amongst the ashes and left amongst the body. It appeared that although badly discolored by the fire, this had to be the ring. All the skin was burned away, the genitalia were not present, and all the soft tissue of the pelvis had been burned, so the uh, gender identification couldn't have been made on the soft tissue parts. And then Phil Coffin steps in and says several days later, Graham's death hit the headlines of the local newspapers. Rockstar's body burned in a bizarre desert ritual. Everybody in L.A. knew that I did it, so it didn't take long for the cops to figure it out. Cops came to my house and questioned me, and they said, Did you have necrophiliac sex with him? And all sorts of other bullshit. And as it happened, Arthur Penn and Gene Hackman were shooting some scenes from a film called Night Moves at my house that day. As I'm being taken to the cop car, Hackman and Penn are standing there watching and asked Caffey what was going on. This guy leaned over and explained to Arthur Penn, Well, Gene, we're shooting the wrong movie here. Later, when I was driven home, they stopped filming and everybody gave me a round of applause once they figured out what I did for our dear departed, Graham Parsons. Eventually, we went to court, and all they could charge us with was stealing a casket. The body itself had no intrinsic value, so unless someone filed a complaint, there is no law broken. They fined us with $1,300. Graham's stepfather had bought the cheapest casket he could get, so Dale paid the fine. Uh, and then an epilogue to our tale, Graham Parsons' remains, what were left of him, were shipped by his stepfather back to New Orleans for burial at the Garden of Memories. In Kaufman's words, he says, Dying was a great career move for Graham. He's now acknowledged as one of the most influential rock country performers of all time. Room number eight at the Joshua Tree Inn is now a shrine dedicated to Parsons' memory, but it remains available for rent. Wow. Yeah. So there you have it. A story I think would be fit for a freaking movie. That's crazy. Uh, there our buddy was, his naked body, and, you know, he had rigor mortis in his penis, and so I booped him on his nose, and then we lit that motherfucker on fire. Did you say rigor mortis or Rick and Mortis? <laughs> Rick and Mortis. <laughs> oh, funny either way. Yeah. Oh, man. Well, buddy, I can hear my internet cutting in and out, and the snow is falling over here in Wichita, so we should probably cut this one early. Yep. All righty, folks. Thanks for joining us on this short little pit stop. We'll be back next time around with Big Steven to have a chat about 
cremation, something that Stephen has kind of gotten to be a little more accustomed to. If you're on the social medias, check us out on the old Instagram, PXL Paranormal. If you're on Facebook, please check us out at the Pixelated Paranormal Podcast. Preston, what do you got for us? Look, uh, go over to YouTube. We're already up to 163 subscribers. Oh, um, 115 15 videos are now uploaded. So if you have somebody who's like old-fashioned about their podcast, you know, send them to YouTube. Let them discover us. Uh, I'd, I'd love to see YouTube grow bigger and better. And we can't uh-huh. do that without your help. And after you get done with that, you know, you might find yourself one one day like Johnny Depp and your good buddy Hunter S. Thompson is dead and you got to figure out what to do with his ashes. And, you know, your buddy says, blow me out of a cannon. And so you gather all your friends and you're gathered around this cannon and everybody looks at you and they're like, Jesus Christ. Get yourself together, Johnny. I mean, your beard looks like shit. Your hair looks like shit. You look like a scuzz muffin. And nobody <laughs> wants to have a scuzz muffin beard. And I'm here to tell you, listeners, the only way to avoid scuzz muffin beard is to go over to BigDobsBeardBomb.com and use promo code PXLPARA for 20% off your order and pick yourself up some scents like Bay Rum, Dundee Cedar, Sweet Tobacco, Fresh, Citrus, Mint, and Classic. Mm-hmm. Boy, howdy. And if you're in the Wichita area, please stop by and see our dear friend Leslie and the rest of the gang over at CD Trade Post. All right, the snow's falling and nighttime's a calling, so with that, I'll say cheers to the weird shit in the world and those of us that love to talk about it. And stay spooky and stay on the paranormal highway. The cast that Pixelated Paranormal would like to thank you for listening to this week's episode. Pixelated Paranormal is here to tell you tales of the fantastical, the strange, the unknown. Tales that will move you a little further down the paranormal highway. If you'd like to share your own listener story, we would love to hear it. Email us at pixelatedparanormal at gmail.com. Again, that's pixelatedparanormal at gmail.com. We'd really love to hear from you. Again, thanks for listening to this week's episode of Pixelated Paranormal, your guide to the unusual and the strange.